As a kid, my idea was church was get there, sit there, and leave it there. As I got a little older, I understood that there was more to it than that. That worship of a sovereign God demands a response from my heart and from my life, both inside of church and outside of church. A life of faith was not something I was to come and plug into between at our church back home, 10 and 12 o'clock, or actually a lot of times our church went to 1 in the afternoon, and, and unplug when we left. I come to understand that faith, being a Christian, is to be lived out 24-7. And that my faith carries with it a moral responsibility to be a light to this world and to be salt in this world. In other words, because of my worship and my faith in Jesus Christ, with this one life that I have in Christ and in this body of Christ in the church, we are to have this positive, ever positive changing effect on the world around us. With that said, I want to talk to you about one life, do something, it's a church. In 1963, there was a sign posted on the door of University Church in New York City, and it said, gone out of business, didn't know what our business was. And I think sometimes we, you, can be so demanding, where we want our own favorite and personal ministry, and we want our own kind of pet peeves, and we want what we like done at the church, instead of doing, quote, the business of the church. So this morning I'm really want to kind of dig in a little deep and just kind of share with you what the Bible says the business of the church looks like. And sometimes we want the business of that church to be all about the ministries we like, prefer, enjoy, or want. But I want us to look at three very broad categories types of ministries. Let's take our Bibles and journey through the scriptures and see what the ministries of the church, the business of the church is to look like with this one life. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 58. This is not the definitive example in this category. It's simply a representative example of this category. And when you come to Isaiah 58, you come to the first of three ministries that I want to look at this morning, and that's the ministry of justice. That's the ministry of justice. Justice ministries address evils and injustices that exist in society or in the world where the acts that are perpetrated, where the wrongs that are done, where the evil that is committed are to such a degree that it demands a response from the church, the people of God. Those are called justice ministries. In Isaiah 50. Eight, the people of God are clearly in focus. Look at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. It says, shout it aloud. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sin. Now, this is God saying to Isaiah, buddy, here's what you got to do. Say it loud. Say it strong. Say it proud. Here we go. And when you read verses 2, 3, and 4, you're going... Dude, they're doing everything right on the outside. Look at what it says. For day after day, they seek me out. What's wrong with that? They seem eager to know my ways. What's wrong with that? As if they were a nation that does what is right 
and has not forsaken the commands of God. Uh Uh-oh, there's a little hint of hypocrisy in that phrase. As a nation, they were a nation that does what is right. They ask me for just decisions, justice, and seem eager for God to come near them. You would say, praise God, we want a church like that. We want to be the people of God then. Why have we fasted? This is a fasting people. Now, this is Old Testament. The church has an habit. It's talking about the time of the temple and the tabernacle. Israel is a split nation. There's the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. Ten tribes or, or main families made up that group. And then there were a southern kingdom called Judah, which two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, made that one up. And so here Isaiah is preaching to the northern kingdom, the biggest kingdom. They're going down fast. They're in a free fall. And they're fasting... And they're saying, God, we fasted, and you've not seen it. God, basically they're saying, God, we're doing all of this, buddy, to impress you. We're we're laying it all out. But notice, keep reading, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. All of a sudden, God makes a jump. From what happens inside the tabernacle to what happens outside the tabernacle. He makes a connection from what happens in their church or in their synagogue, in their temple when they worship God to how they live when they're not there. God now expands this concept of worship and response to God far beyond a Sunday morning only experience. He says that when you worship as a lifelong follower of Christ, you you don't come and do as you please in church, feel good, raise a hand, sing a song, shake a hand, plug in, and then when you walk away, unplug, real worship changes you from the inside out. God says, not so. See, when the evils of society, and Isaiah is preaching not to a family, he's preaching to a country. He's preaching to a kingdom. He's preaching to the people of God who believe and are said to have followed God. And so they are to do the right stuff. They look good, but they have wrong thinking. They thought that worship of God was a Lord Day only event, and what happened there stayed there, and what is to have no effect on the rest of their lives. And these specific objections of God, oh, by the way, God wasn't a, 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 impressed with their religious display. In fact, he objected to it, and you'll see where the objectives come in verses 3, 6, 7, and 9. So they were worshiping God, but then they would go out and live a life of exploitation of workers. They would allow and encourage national injustices. There was an oppression of the poor that they were a part of. There was neglecting of the poor. They were ignoring the wanderers. The wanderers were the aliens. They were the immigrants. They were the people that no other country wanted. Or they were the people who thought that life would be better with the people of God. So now they're... Ignoring the aliens, and then there was just flat-out oppression of the people working and, and moving and manipulating the people. I don't know what that was, but mani- moving and manipulating the people so it was for their good and not for the glory of the kingdom of God. 
And God is basically saying, you can shout all you want to in church. You can raise your hands and praise the Lord all you want to in church. You can fast all you want to in church. But until you deal with some justice issues as a nation, blessings will not come. And we don't like that kind of talk, do we? Because we often picture like the extreme social activists. That's not what he has in mind. These things that God's mentioned involve unjust systems and institutions that block people's access to opportunities. It stunted their human dignity, and just like today, it robs them of peace. In Isaiah 57 and verse 19, you see the word peace just back up a chapter. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom. One more time. Shalom. And it's the Hebrew word for peace. And a lot of times we take their word, drop it into our culture, give it our definition, and we really strip it of the beauty of its meaning. Because when we say the word peace, we often think of inner peace. We often think of a personal tranquility, kind of an inner calmness. Is everything all right in my world? Am I at peace? Are my hus- husbands and wives getting along? Are moms and dads and kids getting along? We tend to think of it in our individualistic world, a peace. In the Old Testament, peace had a broader context. Peace was in the context of family or community. In the Old Testament, a person would never say he was doing well if his family was not doing well. And in the Old Testament, a family would never say they were doing well if the community wasn't doing well. And in the Old Testament, they would never say that they were at peace as a community if the nation was not at peace. So the concept of shalom has this broad kind of fabric effect on society. Shalom, that Hebrew word for peace, is like a fabric where God's grace and mercy, love, holiness, and the lives of people, families, and communities are interwoven and and interdependent upon the love and the holiness and the grace of God. Peace. Shalom. Then there are times when the fabric of that society are not beautiful anymore. There are times because of sin that the fabric of society becomes dirty. The fabric of society becomes ripped. The fabric of society becomes torn. And whether it's torn by racism, prejudice, whatever you want to put in there, somebody has to stand up and be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the government. That is the people of God. That is exactly who Isaiah is talking to. The people of God. When peace is broken. When the fabric of peace is torn in a family. When the fabric of peace is torn in the community. When the fabric of peace is torn in the nation. When shalom is broken because of the injustices of the country. Of of society. When the injustices of society are so evil, so wicked, the church, the people of God, must rise up and give a response. By the way, verse 8 and 9, look at those verses real quick. Verses 8 and 9, it says, when you do, 
when you rise up in a justice ministry. Then your light will break forth as a dawn. Your healing will appear, will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. In other words, he protects you on the front side and on the back side. And when you will call, the Lord will answer. And when you cry for help, he says, here I am. Got it? In verse 1, they were sitting in church, letting evil go on around them on the outside, looking for God, but not finding him. Then in verse 8 and 9, they left. God says, if you leave the church with your faith, if you leave the church intent on being salt of the earth and light of the world, if you leave the tabernacle, if you leave the abode of God and you go into the culture that is ripped where shalom is no longer there and you attempt to mend back the brokenness, you attempt to rethread, you attempt to give new color and new life and new holding onto the fabric of society, then God says, I show up. And I'll help you. But you don't even have to look for me. Because I'll be right there. Was the church ever involved in activist ministries? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Matter of fact, I think it's the next slide. You'll see some of those. You'll see some of those folks. Probably the most notary, the one who has the most notoriety in recent history would be Dr. Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. Mother Teresa ministering to the poor, the untouchables in Calcutta and New Delhi. The right to life movement where we address the dignity of life issues. Now on the bottom of that slide is Wilbur, Wil, Wilbur, ah, Wilberforce who over in England was really the one who started the whole end of slavery issue. Not, in, in, not just simply in America, but in South America and all across the world. When the fabric of society is torn, when the peace, when the shalom is no longer in the family, in the community, in the nation, then the people of God must address the injustices that go on in the nation. Now we don't like that talk, do we? We don't like it at all. Because that means we've got to get out of our bubble, out of our box. It means we've got to get out of church. And we have to take our faith and let it shine. So that, light, so that light pushes back the darkness. Well, the next ministry I want to talk to you about is not only the ministry of justice, but the ministries of mercy. Ministries of mercy. Mercy ministries are key to the formation of a healthy church. Mercy ministries happen when the church, groups in the church, or individuals respond to a need, an issue, a hurt, a loss, the poor, in the church, or around them. Caring for the needy people is the job of every believer, not just the pastors and the deacons. In fact, in Acts chapter 6... By the way, this is a great sign. I don't know if you could read it. I was doing a Google search, and I threw this in right at the last minute. Because mercy, mercy ministries are all about helping hurting people. However, this church had the right attitude. They just had the right wrong sign on the front of their church. I don't know if you can read it, but it says, We love hurting people. You can take that two ways. Mercy ministries are about helping the hurting. The broken, those who have been 
marred and hurt by sin. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles, the early church pastors in Acts chapter 6, were about 550 years now from Isaiah 58. Jesus has come and he's died on the cross. And now the church has been inaugurated because of Pentecost. And so now there's only 12 preachers and the church is just exploding and they're doing all kinds of ministries. And one ministry was suffering. There was this poor group and, and one certain of the group was complaining that the other group was getting preferential treatment and the apostles were literally pulling their hair out. So they said, well, wait a minute. The fabric of the church is being torn. Let's figure this thing out. Let's look out seven men of good report. Let's get them to serve deaconos. Let's get them to serve, be the deacons, to be the waiters, the servers of this ministry. Let's get them to lead this ministry. And we'll go back to the study and prayer and preparation of God's word. It was a beautiful thing. When they did that and those seven took over from the preachers, immediately, man, the fussing stopped and the church exploded again. Not in fighting or disruption, it exploded in numerical growth and with the number of souls being saved. The real key to mercy ministries is that they're motivated and best directed by lay volunteers. Not by pastoral staff. It's not like we invoke and say, you've got to do this mercy ministry. Mercy ministries happen best when the mercy is a wellspring and an overflow of your heart because of the mercy you receive from Jesus Christ and the love you have for others and you just feel compelled that you have to do something about it to address the need in, in, in the group, the individual, the family, or whatever. The real key to mercy ministries is that they're motivated and best directed by lay volunteers. When a group of people begin to learn about a need, someone struggling financially, somebody in a jam, and they're willing to commit significant time and emotional energy to it, and faith to minister to that circumstance, I'm telling you, you don't need a theology degree to do that. You just need a heart that says, you just need eyes that look around and a heart that says, hey, I can do that. We can do that. We can meet that need. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. This is what Jesus said. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Not just preach the good news, but to the poor. To the people who were cut off. From society, the people who did not get to sit at the gates, the people who were not invited to the nice parties or the eloquent banquets, these were the people who had no upward mobility in society. Jesus said, I have come to preach the good news to the poor. In other words, grace is just as much for the poor man as it is the rich man. And we all say amen to that, don't we? Because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed. In other words, he has put all of this under the context of preaching, of ministry, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The real key to mercy ministries is that they're motivated just by you. And I'm telling you, when they are motivated by you, 
You do incredible things. When we try to make it a formalized ministry, it gets a little bogged down. We've had groups, small life groups, go and paint other people's homes. They don't even come to church here. We just found a need, they found a need and went and painted. We have life groups who put a roof on somebody else's home. They didn't pay for it. They group took care of that. I'm telling you, there are mercy ministries that go on around here all the time. And, and, and you're going to see a list of, of mercy ministries, and it doesn't even hit them all, but there's Hope Ministries, ChristNet, Orchard Children's Parties, the Christmas Party, the whole, uh, Heroes and Princesses Party, the Detroit Rescue Mission, the Deacons Benevolent Fund, the Appalachian Trips, Lori's Summer Lunch Program. And I mean, I could just go on, and I could just go on, and I could just go on. Big things is putting a, a roof on somebody or, or a group just getting together and providing dinner because somebody's had a baby or they got out of the hospital or just because it's tight in their home and you recognize the need and God just put it on your heart and you responded to that movement of God. I'm telling you, people, I could go into all kinds of wonderful spiritual blessings that go along with being a part of a mercy ministry. I can, but I don't have time. I'm just simply saying, when you move on behalf of others, man, all of a sudden God goes, yes, you got it. I was so excited Friday night. I coached a little under eight soccer team. I had a first year player. And, uh, and I wasn't sure if, if he was quite getting it or not. And we just had this little thing where if the ball goes out of bounds, the defense, always the defense, comes up, throws the ball in. We throw it right down the sideline. We just keep things simple. That's not how you would do it in high school ball. But it, in under eight, we just do that to give kind of movement and responsibility. And I, for the first time ever, I didn't have to tell this little guy to come to the sideline and get the ball. He ran right over, grabbed the ball, told the other guy, you're the runner, ready, set, go. I'm going, did you see that? I was all over the sideline. I was high-fiving parents. Did you see that? I tried to find his dad. Didn't see his dad. I found his mom. I said, did you see what your son just did? I was so excited. Listen, when you get this thing in mercy ministry, all of a sudden, Jesus in heaven starts pointing to the angels all around heaven and saying, hey, did you see that? He's got it. Salvation is not just about them. It's not about you. It was never about you. Your salvation, this may be hard for you to understand, your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is so that one day you and all the other yous can kneel down in that streets of gold, walls of jasper, in front of Jesus Christ and say that, hallelujah, what a Savior, and they're all the same. Give Jesus Christ the glory and honor that's do his precious and holy sweet name. And when you start ministering to others, Jesus goes, they're getting it. They're getting it. Way to go. Luke chapter 17 and verses 8, 9, and 10 describes the attitude of anyone involved in mercy ministries. Should be what, what is, should be our attitude. Jesus tells us that when we've worked hard, just look at the last part. Verse 10. When you've done everything you were told to do, it's part of a parable. 
your response and being a mercy. And part of a mercy ministry is not to, to shout it out going, hey, 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 did you know what we did last Friday night? Let me tell you what me and the boys did. We organized this thing. We did this. We pulled it off. We did this. Da, 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 da. And we start talking like we're all that in a bag of chips. Jesus said, no, 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 no. See, whenever you serve in a mercy ministry, your attitude should be, you know, we're just unworthy servants. And we've just done what we're supposed to do. Love others in Jesus' name. And loving others in Jesus' name means that we meet the needs that are there and prevalent in their life. In Luke chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, there's the story of the Good Samaritan. And whether you knew a church or not, most of us know that story. There was this parable of Jesus, and this guy got beat up by thieves and robbers, and the preacher walked by, and he didn't do diddly squat. There was church people that walked by, and they didn't do anything for this guy. He was half beaten, half dead on the road. And then here comes this Samaritan who was hated by the Jews because they were kind of like national half-breeds, half-Jew and half-Gentile. And so everybody kind of disliked the Samaritans. And it was the guy that nobody liked that bent down and helped the guy that nobody wanted to help. And look what he said he did. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And and he put the man on his own donkey. Now he's walking and the other guy's riding. He took him to the inn. And he stayed there and he took care of them. And then the next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him. And when I return, he didn't leave the responsibility just because he left the geographical location. He says, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. If you consider the medical costs, the transportation issues, the logistical issues, and this is an impressive display of mercy. And now we have hospitals all over America entitled or called Good Samaritan Hospital. You see, the scope of the Good Samaritan Mercy certainly was a generous offer. And the ministry of mercy is meeting the felt needs and the real needs through deeds. The church is to be an agent of the kingdom of God, not only winning people to Christ, but working for the healing of persons, families, relationships, and yes, nations. It's by doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. But there's one more broad category of church business, church ministry. And that's the ministry of grace. That's the ministry of grace. And biblically, this is the most important ministry because the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ just doesn't change your soul. It has the power to change everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ just doesn't change your status and your standing. It does, but it also has the power to change everything. The gospel means good news. And a grace-giving ministry is simply declaring, taking out, going forth with the message of the good news. It might look as simple as handing out postcards and a DVD or a CD of, of the 
praise team singing. I'm a little miffed that they've done this a couple of times now when they don't give out a CD of me preaching. We will have a staff meeting about that this week. It's grace ministry. It's getting the message out. Because the greatest need that a human being has, I don't care what his age, I don't care what his status in life, I don't care his social economic standing, the greatest need a person has in his life that will affect every other area in his life is Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, Jesus is the bottom line answer for radical change in your life and in this church and in our community. It all starts with activating the power of God in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 talks about the good news. How God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. That Jesus Christ became God in flesh, walked on this earth 33 and a half years, showed us what God is like, then died on the cross for our sins and the sins of the entire world, not just to simply save us from ourselves and to save us from our sins, but also to save our families and our communities and our societies so that we might live under the direction of God and not under the direction of oppressive and selfish men and women. The power of grace, the power of the good news changes everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ has power to change your life and the fabric of society on every level. The gospel tells us that our root sin is not just failing in our obedience to God, but relying on our own obedience to save us. The gospel of Jesus Christ not only has the power to change Mike Trimble, and to change Kirby Church. But man, it should have this tsunami effect and change the landscape and the fabric of society on every level. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an ABC thing, but it is an A to Z change because it addresses every problem. You, you see, the gospel lets us know that We are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope at the same time. The more you sin, you sin more, and you're certain that the more you sin and the more you see your sin, the more you and I ought to become certain that we're saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. The gospel gives us the power to change everything. The gospel is central. The gospel is the starting point to repair the torn fabric of society. In fact, to weave a new society. I've seen one amazing situation where the ministries of justice, mercy, and grace all came together. Three years ago, I had the real unique privilege to go to the country of India and to preach there in many different places and many different circumstances. By far, I had two experiences that stood out in my mind that just blows everything else away. One is when they dressed me up like a cult leader, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but they gave me an Indian, you know, thing, and I had the 
wrap that went around. I had the guy who followed me with the umbrella because it was real hot out there where we were. And we went to a leper colony. If you've been here any length of time, I tell this story frequently because it had such a tremendous impact on me. The lepers in India are oppressed in the, by the injustices of the caste system. C-A-S-T-E. They have no upward mobility because they're locked into the caste. They are not to marry outside of their caste. And the prejudice of that society means there are certain things they can and they cannot do. And then when you are a leper on top of that, you are ostracized and you are nothing more than a beggar. Missionaries went in, built this wonderful community for the lepers. They built them homes. Not only did they build them homes, but they taught them a trade. They, they tried to rebuild the fabric of that torn society by the evils of prejudice. They, they went back and they didn't start on the political side of it. They started on the spiritual side of it. And they worked it from the soul out. And so now in this leper colony. They're teaching them how to farm. And they're teaching leopards who have no digits. Have no fingers. They're teaching them. To weave. A new kind of fabric. Not only. Not only so they could be self-supporting and have dignity and worth and not be beggars. Because what good would it be as one missionary told me to be a child of God and still be begging for bread. And so now they're weavers of this beautiful fabric. And I was there the first day when the first five came off the line and I bought them all out, man. Because this is a new kind of fabric. Where justice, mercy, and grace comes together to change a nation. That was, I think, on a Tuesday. On that Sunday, I sat and had lunch with the director of the Indian Bible Society, getting Bibles out to, to, to the Indian people. And he said to me, we fully expect 50% of Indian. Right now, they're, I think, at 8 or 9%. We fully expect that 50% of, of the people of India who are Buddhist or Hindu will be born-again Bible-believing Christians by the year 2020. I said, how would you do this? He said, we took to them the grace of God. We fed them, clothed them, loved them, took care of them when they were sick, take, took care of their parents when they're dying. We absolutely met their deepest needs. We showed them what Jesus Christ was like, and then we started dealing with the evils in the culture around us. That's the business of the church. You may be here this morning, you may say, okay, pastor, I hear you. Never really heard anything like this kind of before yet, but I hear you. And you may be sitting there feeling like the fabric of your life is torn apart, that someone, some organization has imposed a huge injustice on you and you feel the need for fairness and justice. Sometimes you feel your greatest need is to get revenge, and that's not it. Your greatest need is Jesus. 
You may feel economically devastated, broke, jobless, which affects almost every part of you and you feel depressed, discouraged, angry, loss of initiative. And you think if you can just get the job, you're going to be all right. The job will give you a paycheck, but the job will not give you shalom. It will not weave again the fabric of peace in your life. What you need is Jesus. You say, well, I have no shalom, I have no peace. And you feel like the fabric of your life is ripped apart and torn. And every road you choose just ends up being the wrong road. And I'm telling you, your greatest need is not just to come to Jesus on Sunday morning, but to go back to verses 1, 2, and 3 of Isaiah 58 and make sure that when you leave this place, you go walking with Jesus. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Father, you call us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And we take that to be a very self-centered thing. We make church and we make faith all about us.